0: Welcome to School of Movies. John Wick. Now, normally at this point I'd play you the trailer, but the trailer for the original John Wick is very kind of boom, boom, bow, 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 John Wick, he's killing dudes. And it doesn't really sum up the movie for me. However, this one scene, three minutes in length, not only sums up... The intoxicating dark tone, but also very neatly explains the premise, just in case you haven't seen the film. It's not what you did, son, that angers me so. It's who you
1: did it to. Who? The fucking nobody? That fucking nobody is John Wake. was an associate of ours. We called him Baba Yaga. The Boogeyman? Well, John wasn't exactly the Boogeyman. He was the one you sent to kill the fucking Boogeyman. Oh, John is a man of focus. Commitment, sheer will, something you know very little about. I once saw him kill three men in a bar with a bouncer. With a fucking. Ah! Suddenly, one day, he asked to leave. So were a woman, of course. So I made a deal with him. I gave him an impossible task. A job no one could have pulled off. of what we are now. And then my son, a few days after his wife died, you steal his car and kill his fucking dog. Father, I can make this right. Oh, how do you plan that? By finishing what I started. What the? I didn't hear a fucking word, I said. Papa, you have sois brav, yes Yosef, we John will come for you. You will do nothing because you can do nothing. So get the fuck out of my sight.
0: Rejoining us this time around from our Guillermo del Toro series, one of our very favorite people who always seems to make our show better is Lauren Greve.
2: Oh hello there uh, that's a heck of a lead in. I hope I can keep up to that <laughs> oh, rather high expectation. <laughs>
0: And this movie kind of came out of nowhere, and it grabbed everyone by the jaffers. Five years ago, at the time of this recording, Keanu Reeves, at the age of 49 at the time, revitalized a still pretty strong acting career, and immediately became the focal highlight of this stark, raw, violent assassin thriller. In 2017 came a highly successful sequel, with another releasing this very week, and it's a series that director Chad Stahelski would like to run and run. Now, I did not love the second, and I suspect I might have similar problems with the third. There was a definite shift in focus from a very dark, very self-contained, very personal revenge story to a more ostentatious one man against a legion of lesser assassins in a world oblivious to their existence even when gunfights are happening out in public type story. But I'm in the minority here as everyone else seems to love John Wick too, And they were champing at the bit for more and bigger with Parabellum The teaser trailer of which I recall causing an earthquake of adulation on Twitter And I don't want to belabor my point when it has already been made John Wick continuing ad infinitum until he's fighting literally everybody in the world isn't hurting anyone Well, he is, but the film series isn't So rather than giving you an extensive overview of all three, like we're planning to with King Kong in a few weeks and Men in Black after that, we figured we would go back to just the original John Wick for now and examine why it's so very strong. And the toughest challenge for us is to somehow stand toe-to-toe with a truly excellent 20-minute piece by Mikey Newman for Film Joy, wherein he covered an immense amount of what we normally would in succinct and in incisive
3: fashion. What's interesting is how similar this setup for vengeance-laden violence it is to Road to Perdition, a mob boss's idiot man-child progeny, in an effort to prove how big of a badass toilet lord he is, commits a woefully deplorable act of violence against the bare threat of humanity holding our protagonist back from burning... The whole thing down. The mob boss then has no alternative but to choose the side of his own blood over his top assassin, even though he believes that choice will topple his entire empire and does.
0: We've got that to build upon, if not match. So we'll start with the director, Chad Stahelski, and his uncredited co director, David Leach who began their careers as stuntmen for Keanu Reeves and Brad Pitt, among others. So I've got their uh, IMDb pages open, and it's director Chad Stahelski, just his stunt work. Uh, He started out in The Crow, where he played stunt double to Brandon Lee, reshoots only uncredited. Whoa. That means that after Brandon Lee was horribly and tragically killed on set... He stepped in to play the crow. He doubled for Keanu Reeves in all three Matrix films, which seems to have led to a career-long connection between Reeves and Stahelski.
2: He was the stunt double for Reeves and also, like, Constantine mm-hmm. and Thumbsucker and just a ton of these. But what I think's really cool is further up the list, whenever he starts switching from being the stuntman to being the stunt coordinator, yeah. he's responsible for some, like, some films that I think has like some pretty incredible action scenes. Like I really like V for Vendetta. A lot of that stuff and Serenity. The actual like, two thousand five Serenity. The has, good Serenity. The good Serenity <laughs> has like really good cinema or uh, like stunt work in it. Like really good like action scenes mm. and. While I can't say much about most of the films that he was a stunt man in, when he started becoming the stunt coordinator, some of these are movies that I actually straight up remember for having, for for their action, for their fight scenes.
0: 300, Speed Racer, Ninja Assassin, Red 2, The Wolverine, and a really good low-budget focused martial arts thriller, Man of Tai Chi, featuring Keanu Reeves as the villain. Quite a few second unit director credits as well, uh, which means that after being stunt coordinator for a while, he got to be behind the camera for uh, Hunger Games, uh, Sherlock Holmes 2, the uh, Robert Downey Jr. one, Expendables 2, After Earth, uh, Hunger Games 2, Hitman Agent 47, and the cream of the crop on this list, Captain America Civil War. We adore all the action in Civil War, so that's that's notable. And his uncredited co-directing buddy, David Litch, had a very similar career path. He did stunts in Blade, Fight Club, Daredevil, The Matrix Reloaded, and Revolutions, Van Helsing, Constantine again, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Again, a lot of the stuff he's doubling for Brad Pitt, he was the Mexican. The Bourne Ultimatum, Speed Racer again, Ninja Assassin again, Conan the Barbarian, that's the one with Aquaman in it, the Michael Bay Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film, which he was also second unit director on and its superior sequel. Uh, Also, action coordinator for X-Men Origins Wolverine. (laughs) <laughs> but that also means uh, since David Lich then went on to, after this, direct Deadpool 2 after Tim Miller was uh, removed from uh, the director's chair and he went off to do Terminator Dark Fate instead, leaving David Litch holding the Deadpool stick again. So that kind of means he was there at the beginning when Ryan Reynolds first played an approximation of Wade Wilson, and then he was there to pick up the slack once Wade Wilson needed a new director. And uh, Chad Stahelski, the uh, director of all three uh, John Wick films, he's directing the new Highlander film. So, I mean, that's fantastic news. This gives us a career path of men who have worked their way up it's it's quite staggering how much uh, um, you know, they've actually been part of. Uh, so it, while it might seem like well the you know the, these are effectively first time directors, they're first time directors who really really know stunts. And as they said in the uh, the making of materials, like seventy five percent of this movie is stunt work.
4: Mm. But that to me, looking at that pedigree, that would lead me to expect John Wick to be something akin to. Ninja, Shadow,
0: Shadow of, of a, a Tear, yeah, something with um,
4: something that the something with Scott Adkins yeah. and the people who work with Scott Adkins a lot,
0: <laughs> who are really responsible for fantastic fight scenes, but yeah, just but it doesn't have that slickness of a exactly, Hollywood picture. Don't
4: necessarily work fantastically with um, with story or script. Uh, not that they're not competent. You know, these are uh, generally stuff that in the past you would have got. A whole shelf of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies that were of the same kind of ilk.
0: Ninja 2 Shadow of a Tear is a really excellent example of focused, long-take action showcasing an amazing martial artist and a very dedicated stunt team. What it doesn't feel like is a classic movie.
4: And John Wick is markedly not in that bracket. Yeah,
0: no. It felt like... DRIVE The Nicholas Winding Refn film That same kind of neon-soaked dark world of violence Just below the surface and to the side of civilised society But slick and mature And thought-provoking and haunting And stylish in a way that it makes every dollar of its 20 million budget Ludicrously low Work for it DRIVE Similarly, 15 million dollars
1: down
0: the and there's nothing imposterish about it, no. and nothing embarrassed about it. It's very decisive.
2: There's two TV series spinoffs that they have announced for John Wick: mm-hmm. The Continental, and 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 I guess it's not a spinoff, but there's another one. It's a it's a TV miniseries called Rain. Mm-hmm. An assassin specializes in making his hits look like they've died of natural causes, starring Keanu Reeves as John Rain. I feel like... John Rade? Yeah. (laughs) I feel like this is getting a little, like, one note here. Uh,
0: This man shot his own dick and then face.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He fell down an elevator shaft. Onto some bullets. Onto some bullets. bullets. (laughs) Best accidental death ever. It just seems so strange to me that it's like you know the director producer thing is just like you know John Wick John Wick Two John Wick Three Hey this is great let's make a whole TV show out of The Continental that's part of it Hey you know what Keanu Reeves is really good as an assassin named John Let's do a miniseries John
0: like, Ray Oh no Hang on Hang on It's like the ninja palette swaps in Mortal Kombat? It's like, it's like John Noob Cybots John Ermac.
4: John Continue Reptile <laughs> Um, he eats
0: your head with his tongue.
4: <laughs> we were speculating yesterday about why David Leach might be uncredited on John Wick. And I theorised, I have absolutely no way of knowing if there's any truth behind this, um, but that uh, David Leach wanted to do this story, and then once that was done, he was quite happy that that was the end of it. Meanwhile, Chad Stahelski wants to go off and do as much as possible off the John Wick name. This
0: is a tidal wave, and Chad is surfing that all the way up there. He's like, I'm going to ride this and see where it goes.
4: i got to... I got a shelf life, dude.
0: <laughs> it almost certainly isn't because, from the looks of it, these two work together on a lot of things, and it, it seems like Leach uh, and and he were very close collaborators. It's possible that they were just like, you know, we could both go off and do our own thing, and one might argue, and I actually did when we recovered uh, uh, the film itself, that Deadpool Two is kind of job as well, a
2: little bit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hmm.
4: <laughs> okay, here's how we here's how we divide this, Chad. You take the name. I'll take the story.
2: <laughs> it's just so strange. Uh, I mean, like, I, I definitely am on the record as liking John Wick two more than you. Mm-hmm. I think, but seeing like how they're planning on just beating this franchise until it's done is really unfortunate. <laughs>
0: the cinematographer is also really, really worth uh, uh, looking at. Jonathan Saylor, who uh, DP on such films as Soul Plane, The Omen remake, Midnight Meat Train, the Mark Wahlberg, Max Payne.
4: Oh, do you know what? I just read that as director of pornography. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: that's a different Sorry. meat train. A whole bunch of music videos, uh, including Katy Perry, Avril Levine, 30 Seconds to Mask, Gossip, Uh, Beyonce A Good Day to Die Hard Atomic Blonde which we'll talk about in a bit also feels a little like John Wick Transformers The Last Night, he was DP on that Deadpool 2 he was DP on that Uh, honestly he's been DP on a couple of really good films and a lot of really bad films and you wouldn't know it when you see John Wick because it is almost Roger Deakins level Skyfall Blade Runner 2049 No Country for Old Men Sicario True Grit The Shawshank Redemption They both seem to have A knack For framing Lonely men That seems like a, there's, there's not as many Huge expanses That, that Deakins is so fantastic At capturing But some of the Club stuff Is Just that level Of absolute pro and also when you uh, look at the behind the scenes stuff of where they're filming uh, in John's house just the sort of much more brightly colored uh, hues and the, uh, the 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 vibrancy of what's going on around was very deliberately muted into a funereal bluish tones to give a crushed yet contrasting wintry michael mann feel
4: one of the things that I was most impressed by looking at that uh, behind-the-scenes stuff was that for, for something to look this stylized, you would expect very careful set photography to be a, a big part of it. But the amount of stuff that they did by finding exactly the right location and setting it up right and combining your external shots with your internal shots to make it look as though everything was flowing into
0: each other. I'll combine your they external shots with your internal shots. <laughs>
4: um, the the house for uh, that John lives in was an actual house that they found. It was
0: a house designed to house art, so it's more of a, a house for things than mm. for people. Which but it is beautiful.
4: Does kind of fit. But the but like I said you would you would anticipate that there would be a lot more intentional design going on um and there wasn't which i suppose with the budget they were working with yeah that made more sense than constructing sets but it's still a tremendous achievement
2: yeah i mean the framing of like every shot is so well considered like there's so many shots in this film that are just like these like lavish tableaus that that would itself be like a work of art just on like a wall like in in a frame Mm. it's just incredible to me and then also just the use of that color is also so deliberate i love that whenever he pulls out of the driveway the second time at the very beginning there's more light outside and the trees are more vividly green than they were the first time because Mm. he has the dog with him yeah and it's just like There's so much going on that's, like, feeding back onto the themes and the narrative and, like, John's emotional journey that I don't remember being in the second one. And and this guy didn't do the photography in John Wick 2, it looks like. But this does explain why Atomic Blonde feels so similar to John Wick to me.
0: Hmm. Atomic Blonde, uh, we have seen, and it we weren't massive fans at all. I think I actually prefer John Wick too, even though it's David Leach directing this one, Atomic Blonde. That's because Lorraine seemed like an empty shell. Like there was nothing there. It was almost, it was almost a a crowning achievement that they'd made James Bond with a lady and they'd done it so accurately that she was just as much of a husk as Bond is.
4: Mm. I think for me, it was the fact that the, not that that was the case, because that could in and of itself been quite an interesting thing to explore, but the fact that they didn't really explore it
0: much. Hmm.
4: It was just there.
0: <gasps> the cinematographer for the second one is Dan Lauston, who has uh, di- uh, been DP on Crimson Peak.
4: And Shape of Water.
0: And, yeah, and League of okay. Extraordinary Gentlemen.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. And
0: John Wick three, and Infinitum four, five, six.
2: That explains why I still think John Wick two looks great. It just doesn't look the same. <laughs> and Brotherhood of the Wolf, which we love.
0: Oh wow! Yeah. When we met John this time, I felt like I was watching the sequel to another story. So, how does that help? with the almost entirely visual storytelling at the outset.
2: They're kind of like starting at the end and then going back to the beginning to show you how they got there. Like, you know where John is going to end up, but you don't know what's going to happen after that or what exactly brought him there, or even who this person is if it's the first time you saw this. Mm. And that, that something that's something that's a little bit of a trope I've seen in other action films, but the way that they shoot this one where John is, like, beat to hell looks like he like he watches the little video where uh ellen says you know what are you doing john and it's just like this really good like reflection of the moment where it almost feels like he's like he's focused on it but he looks so lost in a way and then just kind of like slowly tilts over and for all the world looks like he dies uh before cutting back so it's almost like you're saying like okay well we know where john ends up and he's going to suffer and he's going to perhaps ultimately die for whatever these events are but like let's see what led led up to that it like adds like a curiosity to the the viewer but it does convey a little bit of that emotion especially because like even looking at the video on your phone of like your wife or whatever is such a trope in action films that it's like really playing on those to inform the the viewer
4: The fact that you have all of these little pieces, the radio, which gives you a hint of what's going on in the outside world, they're talking about the weather coming up is going to be really nice, and it's a world that John is not part of, and he's completely separate from that. Then you've got the video on the phone, you've got his voice. Uh, Ellen's words, the fact that she says his name and that's how we work out who he is. Then you've got the photographs on the shelves when it goes back to the house, the flash of the wedding ring, the flowers in the hospital room, and the charm bracelet, which has flowers on it, that tells you something about the character of this woman who we will never meet.
0: The brief intimacy when they're standing on the boardwalk and you get a little flash of uh, what must to John have felt like normality Mm. and then she collapses so you get that shattered. Again, with very little drama and that boardwalk is where he actually ends up at the very end. Yeah.
4: And because there's so little drama and there's so little obvious, emotional, verbal language going on here... It tells you straight off the bat, one, this man lives his life in pieces and fragments. And that sets you up for the exploration of grief that you're about to see, because when you're in a state of grief, that's what life can feel like sometimes, like everything is in pieces and you're doing your best to hold it all together. And secondly, that he is the kind of person who doesn't talk much, that he is a somebody who lives their life through actions rather than words
0: what you're saying about the pieces equates grief with ptsd only rather than horrible moments coming back to slam into you part of the grieving process is wonderful moments coming back and actually causing you pain
2: i remember reading somewhere recently that the difference between overcoming PTSD and overcoming grief is that PTSD is something that you try to move away from, try to move on from, while depression and and grief is something that you carry with you, but you learn how to carry it. (sighs) The cinematography also does a really good job because in almost every scene, John's off, like every shot of the house, John is on one side and there is always a room This empty space for Ellen. Every shot of John in the bed has the left side of the screen is just this empty place where Ellen used to be. Helen. You said before that this was a house made to house art, not people. And it really kind of helps reinforce how John is so at odds with the situation of like being alone in this setup because there's so much of her around like he takes the coffee mug and behind it is another coffee mug with a daisy on it that he doesn't you know touch it's just it's just there he goes into the bathroom and there's another sink with makeup supplies around it that he just looks at and there's just a lingering shot but even the framing of him going and using the sink in the bathroom the whole right side is where she would be and so many of the shots very deliberately show him holding something with his left hand so we can see that ring. So there's, there's so many little bits going throughout it that just reinforces these the, like, the little nagging reminder of her absence. And it, it's especially when I was watching the beginning again this morning, uh, the shot in the hospital is really... I noticed something I never noticed before, because there's this high-pitched tone that uh, kind of goes into her heartbeat monitor. It makes it very, like, unnerving when you're looking at him walking around his house, because there's this, like, high-pitched tone. And then it transitions into the hospital, and it turns into the heartbeat monitor. And John looks at the doctor and nods his head, because this isn't her, like passing away of her own thing he is making the deliberate act of like no she is gone she's brain dead we have to turn the machines off and knowing that there's that one little bit of element because i i like i know a lot of people who've had relatives that they've had to essentially you know pull the plug on after a really bad illness and um just the idea that there's he's gonna feel some kind of guilt related to that I, I think we can pretty much say that in the movie that he feels guilt over that moment. I mean, uh, John Leguizamo's character even says, "Don't feel like, don't feel guilty," um, and it's it's just that that one little act, that little nod, almost shows his complicit complicity uh, in in her end, but there was nothing else he could do. Complicity, and it, it's just. so heartbreaking to watch and
4: two things about that scene that that lead into others later as well almost immediately after it uh, cuts to the funeral and the shot in the hospital and the shot in the funeral are the only two scenes where she's there and again he's off to the side and then there's the space that she's taking up that in the other uh, frame shots, there's the gap where she ought to be. And they have the same thing at the wake as well. He's off to one side while everybody else is mingling and talking to each other. They're not coming to talk to him. That's not his network. And that feeds into something that I'm going to talk about in a little bit, about what his network actually turns out to be. There's a juxtaposition there between John Leguizamo telling him not to feel guilt and then towards the end of the film when Vigo says to him, oh, no, 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 feel guilty, it's your fault because you lived this life. This is why this happened to her. Even though from a a real perspective it's not, it's nothing to do with with what John did and that's the whole point of, of why she has the death she does, but that Vigo will use that as a knife to twist. And the reason he does is because he feels that about himself.
2: Well, the other thing about the funeral is that while he's surrounded by all these people that especially to us are like non-entities because to John, they, they're not really like a part of his life. There is a character that steps up and talks to him about that. And that's Marcus because Marcus. Marcus shows up at the at the funeral. And uh, that ends up being a really good Storytelling, like visual storytelling for who Marcus is, where he shows up because he does have this connection to John, but he's such a voyeur. He stands way off to the side, observes, he lives, we find out later, he lives in this huge, lavish apartment all by himself. Uh, his preferred form of assassination is via sniper rifle from several rooftops over. And just everything he does, he is so disconnected from just everyone. And it's almost showing another another way of dealing with the, like, kind of assassin lifestyle, where John was like, I need to get out of this, I make connections like, he made connections with somebody well, he has connections with other people like John Leguizamo's character, whose name I can't remember, which is why I keep calling him John Leguizamo, um, and Marcus, are are like you know, they're actually pulling for John there's no leverage, there's no money there's no transactions, they're they're just happy to help him Aurelio
0: is John Leguizamo
2: Ah, yes, Aurelio, but I just I just love that scene because again, as I was watching it this morning, it occurred to me that Marcus is a voyeur on other people's lives and doesn't have much of one for himself, which I think is really reinforced by a lot of the shots later on in the film where he's in his house, but like doing really specific things like he he clearly has like rituals when he comes back in and like places his watch in certain places and it, It made for an interesting... Oh, gosh, I was trying so hard. It made for an interesting juxtaposition between the two characters while also informing on the greater emotions behind one of the secondary characters. Mm.
0: See, that is perfectly cromulent use of the word interesting.
4: (laughs) Mm -hmm. it, It also, now you've said that, Lauren, makes me think that, in a way, they may be trying to imply that Marcus envies John and perhaps on some level, so does everybody else. In this world, they envy the fact that he got out and had a life, albeit
2: a short one. Mm. Yeah, I I think that's absolutely, yeah.
0: So John's wife uh, has died, but she's left him a final present, uh, Mm. which is a puppy named Daisy. She tells him to take care of this puppy
4: he needs something to love and she suggests that he start with daisy because the car doesn't count
0: yeah. which sounds like a private joke between the two of them she also signs the card your best friend which is a moment of startling intimacy for hollywood this is why it feels like a um the end of another movie it feels like we've we've experienced the relationship between these two, and that this would be the final part of another movie where John has you know receives Daisy and decides to carry on and move on, and and the idea of a, a grieving widower is uh, something we don't honestly get to see all that much.
4: Not in action films where the point of the story is not that he does not in fact grieve, but goes out to avenge her for being fridged which is what usually happens just
0: a moment Mm -hmm. Uh, but um, then uh, John uh, when he's out and about uh, with the puppy in this kind of awkward new I don't know how to take care of a dog but I'll try comes across a uh, man named Yosef, played by Alfie Allen. Um, Theon Grey joined uh, Game of Thrones, and he is a Russian gangster hanging out with a bunch of other Russian gangsters, Takes a particular interest in John's 69 Mustang. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, Asks if he can buy it. John says it's not for sale. Then uh, Yosef speaks to him in Russian and says everyone has a price, bitch, and John speaks back to him in Russian. And says, "Not me.
4: Not this bitch. Not
0: this bitch." And later on that night, while uh, John, when John wakes up, uh, his house is broken into by Yosef and his two cronies. Uh, they take his car, smash a bat through the windscreen of his wife's car, so she, it's the only thing left in the garage. So you've got that asymmetry and the violation of his wife's car, and for good measure, murder. A puppy. Why did Yosef perform this atrocity? And why does it power the movie so very hard?
4: Technically, he doesn't do it, does he? No. He says to one of the guys, shut the dog up, and then the other guy does it.
0: The only way he could have not been culpable for that... Is if he had immediately said, I said shut the dog up. Mm. I didn't say kill it. I
4: ain't saying he's not culpable for it. This guy is culpable for so much. Yeah. (laughs) So much. And for no reason. So saying shut
0: the dog up effectively means kill Mm. the dog. So yes, he did do it. But then you're actually saying that the person who hires an assassin is not culpable for the murder, it's mm. the assassin. Mm.
4: Interesting point.
0: And then we have to ask how guilty is John really?
4: For all the things that he's done.
0: Because the subtext of this film is supposed to be that the worst man of mm. the worst men in the world decides to kill all of the rest of them. Mm. Is John really the worst man? But back to my original question.
4: Why does it power Why the
0: movie did so he hard? perform this atrocity and why does it power the movie so hard?
4: significant element is that he does things because he can he's unpredictable he's dangerous and he is so because he doesn't behave in a way that is logical or rational to anybody else around him including his father's men
0: is that a sociopath somebody who understands the difference between right and wrong and just doesn't give a fuck
2: I don't. I don't know if I'd call Joseph a sociopath. At least, in the sense that, to me, he reads a lot more like just somebody who is used to power and not used to being emasculated because of his father. Like the entire thing is just like, like little rich boy syndrome. Mm, I was going to say
4: spoiled fucking brat is the term that springs to mind.
2: But but there's a certain amount of toxic masculinity going along with this. I mean, a skin melting penis face of
3: toxic masculinity with debilitating daddy issues.
2: John talks down to him whenever he's, you know, kind of swinging his balls around. If you, you know, excuse the metaphor. And, um, John's like, yeah, no, like you're a child. Get out of here. Um, essentially like with that line. And he's doing this to try to like reclaim a bit of that perceived lost masculinity, especially in front of his goons. Mm -hmm um and so he has to go in there and he has to like look like this big dude and he has to kind of rest that back in any way he can and i think john actually is like like a really good masculine like character at least as far as that's concerned like there's no toxic masculinity in john's actions but yosef is a hundred percent doing things like that like oh wow well, it's just his dog like kill his dog like he talked to me i'm taking your car because i want it because i'm a bigger man i'm gonna take this and it's just that show of power. And um, that's what sparks the whole thing.
4: It's ultimately, Yosef has a tantrum. And that tantrum, because his whim was thwarted, results in Daisy's death. And what John does in response while horrific and violent and resulting in the death of many other people, also potentially saves many, many lives because of what Yosef would have potentially gone on to live to do. Hmm. Because he would have continued having those tantrums every time his whim was thwarted.
0: And his father wasn't ever going to do
2: anything to stop it. No, he wasn't. And, And there's a lot of evidence that would suggest that he's really been kind of treated almost as like a a mascot almost from the criminal enterprise because like his older brother who's you know in a scene for a hot second tells him like look i'm not here to babysit you i'm trying to protect you and he he calls him like a baby and at this moment joseph is in a bathtub wearing a towel yelling for people to bring him a bottle Mm -hmm.
1: yeah i noticed (laughs) that as well
2: (laughs) like it's it's so specific where it's almost like he has been uh, told that he 's this hard gangster by all of the people around him and his family and all that, and they're they 're treating him like that because he 's just the little brother he 's the little kid who 's tagging along that they give him like little throwaway jobs, but then now that he has done something that is irrevocably going to ruin things, all of that pretense starts falling away where his dad really comes down on him, his older brother really comes down on him, and he just knows fear for the rest of this film. <sighs>
4: It reminds me a little bit of uh, something that was mentioned in a, a fantasy book I was reading. Sort of, if you imagine Game of Thrones style political stuff. In the aristocratic families, the older brother is obviously the one who's going to inherit everything. The younger brothers have to be kept occupied. They have to be given stuff to do and made to feel important, but just important enough. Because if they start to feel ignored or bored, then there is the risk that they will be looking to overthrow their older brothers.
0: Like John the Bastard in Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah. Played by?
4: Keanu Reeves.
0: If I were a dog, I would bite. I cannot believe this is the same actor who was in (laughs) Bram Stoker's Dracula. Music, those animals. (laughs) Bloody wolves chase me through some blue inferno. It's, I mean, it's not that his delivery has just come on leaps and bounds since then. I think it might just be down to his on-screen presence. Mm. He goes from like, a five or a six in uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula to a 29 in John Wick. Mm-hmm. That's just an yes. arbitrary numbering out of I don't know how many, but uh, he just, he's exponentially it's, it's more of a person. It's a 30 presence. on
4: the Keanu Reeves scale, is yeah. what it is. <laughs> how Keanu Reeves is he in this film?
0: But to go back to why it powers this movie so hard, we come down to the central crux question of. We've discussed this trope before on many podcasts, but how is this film not merely a simple case of My Dead Family? And why didn't they just have these Russian goons kill his wife? Would have been so easy.
4: Well, for a start, it wouldn't have been about the same thing.
0: Exactly. So what's it about instead?
4: Okay, My Dead Family tends to be set up as this guy is just minding his own business or doing his job and that brings him into contact with these people who then act against him specifically because they they take a dislike to him for whatever reason mm. um but it's usually because he's done something that that messes with their business or something like that
0: usually professionally based it's it's yeah. almost always because of what he does
4: indeed the the point of contact with Joseph is entirely coincidental. He takes a shine to the car. He's not
0: It's an alarming coincidence, frankly, considering who his dad is well, and who his ex-boss is. I mean
4: ultimately they all hang out in the same area. It yeah, kind of makes yeah. sense. But um it's not uh he he doesn't know who John is when he goes after him. It's this is not a personally motivated revenge attack. He yes, he wants to to satisfy his own slighted ego, but the main thing that drives him is to steal the car.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's not against John. John's just the guy who pissed him off. Yeah, Yeah.
4: absolutely. And the loss of the dog is simply collateral.
0: Just happened a long time. Okay, so when we look at the average My Dead family, we're looking at, uh, like, I actually raised this trope on the Civil War show because I knew that the week after we'd be doing X-Men Apocalypse and I'd seen Magneto getting really cross whilst also seeing bits of his family in the trailer I was like right so they're just going to kill his family and he'll be really really cross and all that will be left is rage and that's exactly what they did in X-Men Apocalypse mm. A very like it, it's the one of the only good dramatic scenes but it's also exactly this trope you've taken away the thing "...that I love, that also was the key to my salvation and redemption, because I, am, you know, I have committed evil in the past, and you've taken away this bright spot in my life, and now all that's left is this evil that there was before, and rage, and now I must kill everyone." And so video games, more so even the movies, are powered by this. You begin the game or you flashback to when your Max Payne character, your dude out of Lord of the Rings, Shadow of Mordor, Talion. God of War, Kratos, has a family and has redemption possibilities. Even X-Men Origins Wolverine. And then the thing that sets him off on the road which is almost always a road of finding who the the person like the like fighting your way through a, a legion of enemies to get to the one big guy who made all your life fall apart kill bill begins with the killing of the mother and almost always children
4: right okay I would say this, and it's it's a subtle distinction, actually thinking about it.
0: and fucking death wish as well.
4: but the yeah, but the the point of the my dead family thing, first off, there is no beginning to the grief. The character is usually uh, his outpouring of rage in part is a way of pushing his grief away so that he doesn't have to feel it mm-hmm. because ultimately, rage. Anger is a moving forward emotion. Grief is a staying still emotion. So in their head, as long as they keep moving, they don't have to feel the grief. John has already started to feel the grief. He has to actively pause it to go and do the thing that he has to do. But he doesn't seem to be solely driven by rage. The way he acts is too calculated in a lot of ways until things really start to ramp up towards the end he's he's almost calm in the way he deals with it and the second thing is that it's almost like if you if you take away the inciting incident of the dead family there's no story there's, there's not really the whole point of that rage then is that it drives forward the story now although His response to this incident is what shapes the story. John's story had already begun. If you take Joseph out of it completely, you could still potentially have a story about an ex-assassin grieving for his recently deceased wife.
0: This is arrested grief.
4: Yeah. As opposed to deliberately postponed he
0: was on the way to being healthy well and very specifically as you said it's nothing to do with uh, his job Mm. it's nothing to he didn't cause this by virtue of his you know previous but his his daily actions all the spider-man i've got to protect you mary jane and oh god gwen stacy's dead and it's all my fault all comes down to this Mm. there's an element
4: of self-blame to it
0: all the wolverine stories are everyone i touch dies Mm. Which is why it's so important that Logan ended the way it did mm. well,
2: and similarly, I think that it's really important that Ellen dies from something outside of John's control, yeah, because everything that we end up learning about John is he's you know a man of focus, he's a man of drive, he's a man of will, and he's always like the kind of person who's like in control of a situation to some extent.
0: Can't shoot cancer.
2: Yeah. You can't shoot cancer. And that's really, to me that ends up being the big difference is because this film wants to explore that grief And the arresting of it, like you said, which is perfectly framed in the smash cut to the shovel. The fact that John can't do anything about it means that the emotions there aren't just rage and revenge because the My Dead Family trope is really just an excuse to have the violence. Mm. And in like a really culturally toxic way, it like it values aggression over introspection. It values revenge over like any kind of reasonable like prosecution or even evaluation of the situation it's just oh well you know i have to do what i have to do to take revenge for what happened and then it usually just ends up being this escalation of revenge back and forth uh and that happens a little bit here is like an escalation as we go along but it's more that john becomes an unstoppable force because He didn't have anything that he could do about his wife. And when he starts to grieve it, when he starts to understand and process his emotions, especially with Daisy, that is stolen from him by the specter of the life he once had. And that's something he can do something about. And it gives him focus. It's not a healthy focus. It's not necessarily a good thing. But it gives him something he can do a direction he can go and he takes it
4: it gives him a catharsis of a kind and i think actually it's just come to me that the the my dead family is about somebody who has a great anger within them regardless of what happens to the family and as you say lauren it's an ex- it is a triggering thing that's an excuse for that violence to come out whereas this is very specifically he is expressing a particular emotion that has been set off by something else and therefore it has there is an end in sight for that once he uh once he purges that in a way it's it's done with and then he can go back to his grieving process when the typical my dead family character has got his revenge then what does he have? Hmm. He's got to start his grieving process from scratch.
2: He's, he's just got more revenge in the sequel so then it becomes, yeah.
1: <laughs> Death, Death Wish 2 Death, Two,
0: Death Wish Three, 3
2: yeah. Death Wish Four, Death
0: Wish Five, Death Wish Remake. And that's
2: and that's the thing is that we saw that Bruce
0: Willis one the other uh, the other week. What a fucking pile of shit!
2: Oh yeah, I hear it's <laughs> absolutely <laughs> atrocious. But even even taking that into account, John Wick Two isn't about him seeking more revenge. It is experiencing the repercussions of kind of coming back into that lifestyle as he's trying to get out again. You know, it's, it's him trying to deal with like, you know, I made this choice, not necessarily a healthy choice, but I did this thing, you know, in the previous film in order to begin this grieving process in order to like move on in a way to do something but that has repercussions that i have to atone for and that ends up being a big part of john wick too and then there's the whole he gets double crossed and shenanigans and but that's at least the underlying like themes of it is that he's dealing with the repercussions of this very uh like He takes the actions in this film to dig up his past and go do something about what had happened with Yosef at his own detriment, like, ultimately. He is doing something that is brash, that is just as spur of the moment as the rage-filled My Dead Family, but with so much more texture and context and pain that is driving him forward. And then there's, there's got to be a repercussion for that. And that's what they explore in the sequel. Mm.
4: And he's had to loop back because you get the power of three with the burying. He has buried his past, then he buries Ellen, and then he buries Daisy. And then he has to unbury his past in order to move forward.
2: <laughs> in order to bury everyone else. Mm. Yes.
0: Deadpool. Uh, the, the first one's actually more close to this this standard, uh, my not so much My Dead Family, but, like, I'm going to kill everyone to get to this one top guy uh, scenario. And then the second one... is the My... It begins like My Dead Family, but then... The actual main body of the film juxtaposes two men. One who decides, rather than just going on a roaring rampage of revenge, to come back in time and murder a child in order to prevent a, a, a tragedy occurring. And the other being Wade, who wants to nurture in order to move forwards and deal with his own grief. And to that end, it's not just a My Dead family either. And all three films explore... The idea of being able to move beyond the initial paralysis that comes with the grief.
4: Mm. I think as well there's a layer of this story not being about how deadly and tough and powerful John is. It's about how tough he's not. It's about how relentless loss can be and how much damage we can cause on the way down when we're experiencing it.
0: But most people would have uh, come away thinking that John Wick was really, really tough. So.
2: Well, the, the thing that I, that I think really drives that point home, though, Sharon, because uh, I absolutely agree with you, is the action scenes, of which there are many and they are beautiful in their own way, John's particular way of going through it isn't flashy. It isn't this, like, gun-fu. It's not like The Matrix. It's efficiency. It's economy of motion. It is doing what has to be done in that moment without any kind of hesitation, without any kind of thought. It is just moving forward efficiently. John doesn't seem overly powerful. I mean, like, he takes hits, he lands on his gun, everything, but he feels so much more grounded than the average action gun-toting, you know, gun-kata-using uh, super soldier, because it's, it's way more reasonable in a way where he is moving forward he's usually using handguns it's very contained it's just does what he has to do bam 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 and even at the like no kill he does except for maybe the very end um on the pier in the rain is treated as as any different from any other one random mook or the actual person that he is out to kill he just dispatches them out of hand, total efficiency. That's what he's here for. That's what he's here to do. Mm, yeah.
4: And also, you have the scene where he's at the bar, and the the woman who is clearly somebody that he knows says, "I've never seen you like this before." And he says, "Like what?" And she says, "Vulnerable." Yeah, she can see it.
2: And and I and I I think that along with that is another really important point that at no point in this film does John cause a collateral fatality. Uh whenever he's going into the nightclub scene, he sees Francis at the door, who is clearly somebody that he knows and who knows him, and he gives him the like, you better take the night off, Francis. Like it's something where they clearly have like a history. And it's like, hey, you're not coming after me. You're not part of this. There's no reason for you to be here. And in that crowded nightclub scene, every person he takes down is with absolute efficiency that no one else gets harmed in the process. And they're surrounded by other people. And I think that that says a lot, where John is here to do a job. No one else is going to be harmed by him if he can help it. It is just those who are in his way who are trying to stop him from getting this task complete. And that's really important to me because a lot of action films are way over the top. They're very grandiose in their uh, framing of this, like, Violence And there's always those kind of scenes where you're like, oh, there were people in that bus or, oh, there were people in that car. And it's just like, oh, I wonder how much collateral, uh, like, kind of went along with that. But at no point that I can remember, does John cause collateral damage of, of other people. How does
0: Vigo work towards characterizing John for us with his talk of Baba Yaga?
2: My my favorite bit of acting by Vigo is when he gets the phone call, or when he calls Aurelio, Aurelio and he's like, "You you struck my son," and he's like, "Yeah, he came in here with John Wick's car and killed his dog," and just that moment where he turns to the camera and just says, "Oh," and turns the phone off, and that slow walk down the stairs. Uh, where he's just kind of like staring in the middle distance, he is—he is kind of watching the rest of this film play out in his mind. He knows exactly where this is going to go, and he knows he can't—he can't like step down. He can't try to avoid this problem. Like he has to back his son, or he will lose face in like the organization. He can't do anything, but he knows they're all bone. And just <laughs> that is so much more because then he talks about like getting the Baba Yaga like no he's the one you can't you send to kill the boogeyman and 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 all of that like that's great that's telling us who John is because we're like what's going on here and then as he's like elaborating all that and saying i gave him an impossible task and when he completed it we let him retire like we let him go and now you have done this you have brought him back in here and we are all going to die like that is pretty much that whole scene and i just love that everybody else has these unrealistic expectations of just like it's just one man i can take him like send some men in there and um vigo is just oh, no, like, we're going to go through the motions. We're going to do what, you know, we have to do, and we're going to, you know, play this game. But all of us are dead at the end of this. It's, going down it's so present in his acting in that moment, and I
0: absolutely love it. He should have immediately picked up the phone and said, dig 100 graves.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Go go down and tell his right-hand man, hey, when was the last time I had my will updated? Because I'm really thinking we're going to need that. You know what? That life insurance policy, we better quintuple it.
0: But, okay, the the Baba Yaga thing automatically brings in mythology, which is one of the things I love about John Wick, because the way he talks about it makes it feel like something more is actually going on here than just what we're seeing it feels more allegorical and obviously this could just be my inference but it feels especially like when they're in the nightclub uh the the red circle is it Mm -hmm. that something else is playing out here um mikey suggested a lot of theming of greek mythology is at play and I'd, i'd posit that taken on its own this first film is the destruction of the pantheon uh, akin to the first god of war what would back this and other mythological or symbolic readings up
4: my take on who john is if you look at it through a greek mythological lens is orpheus
0: Mm -hmm. Explain who Orpheus is to those who did not... You never studied.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so uh, Orpheus and... I can never pronounce her name. Eurydice. Eurydice, okay. Orpheus and Eurydice is a story about a couple who get married and on the night of their wedding, Eurydice is bitten by a snake and dies and her soul is taken away by Hades. And Orpheus pleads with them to let him have her back. Now, because he is connected... When you say
0: them, who does he plead with? The gods? The gods. All of them.
4: Effectively, Hades' wife, Persephone, takes pity on him because she is somebody who feels love and she can see how much he loves Eurydice so she gives him a chance and she gets Hades to give him an opportunity to come and retrieve his wife so the deal is he has to come down and fetch her she will be sent out after him he has to walk back to the surface and just trust that she is following and not look back and when he's about to reach the surface, he's he, he can't take it on faith anymore. He looks back over his shoulder to make sure that she is following him. And she is, but of course, then he loses her and she has to go back again. So John is going through an underworld in this. The club is a literal underworld that he goes through. The bathhouse beneath it is another layer on top of that, but he is not going through this in any hope that he's coming out with anything not a pointless endeavor but that it's not achieving anything for him it's it's going to help him stand in one place really it's not moving him forward at all the fact that at the end he walks away with another dog means that he does come away with something but that's how i see his element of the story is is orpheus is going down into the underworld to bring his redemption back with him.
2: The name Orpheus has been used in a lot of places in real life, usually like opera houses and things, like really lavishly decorated uh areas, which like the nightclub scene and really most of the places that they're in are just the way that they're shot again, are just like really lavish, like really like Ornate, in a, a way that... you
0: go to get music because Orpheus was a master musician mm, and it's yeah. called the Red Circle, which is mm-hmm. an O.
4: Yes. Oh, yes, it is. I never thought yeah.
0: that. I feel like we're going to be wheeling out Keanu Reeves' is Orpheus again with Matrix Reloaded, where they literally meet Hades in the form of the Merovingian and his wife, Persephone. And Neo brings Trinity back from the dead... Albeit briefly for just one movie.
4: The concierge at the hotel.
0: The Continental.
4: At the Continental is he is referred to in the IMDB cast list as Charon, as in the ferryman that takes people across to uh, the underworld.
0: Across the river Styx.
4: But there is a moment when he, he's, he has these little glasses, these little circular glasses and he tilts his head and the light catches them in a way that makes it look like he has two pennies over his eyes which was what you had to have when you went into the underworld to pay Charon to ferry you across.
0: Two obols. We won't go into uh, too much of uh, uh, labelling people with uh, characters with the pantheon names because Mikey has
3: done that already. I think what's interesting about this is what the writer Derek Colstad had to say about it. He describes Vigo and John as the gods of New York, whereas Winston is the Titan, himself the de facto leader of his own army of other Titans the gods' battle on Olympus, and oh my other god, it is absolutely breathtaking to behold the balletic savagery of what transpires. No mortals are aware that the gods are at war, people of names and roles within Olympus, as they are cast with actors that bring their other roles in as backstory to inform their current one. Apollo, god of guidance and light, Zeus, god of Olympus and keeper of law, order and peace, Ares, the god of war, Artemis, goddess of the hunt, Hephaestus, god of blacksmithing and cleaning up a crime scene, Deimos, son of Ares, and terrified of war. Hades, who is just willing to foe. I mean even a god version of John Wick is awakened with a hammer crushing through the bedrock to retrieve the life he buried. Subtle this is not.
4: Although he doesn't mention the bartender, I think she's Aphrodite. Ah.
0: But let's forgive him that one drop thread. Dude got it done in 20 minutes. We dream of being that succinct.
1: Turn down for What? what?
2: I like that, too. I, I, I kind of want to know more about her. I really... I mean, I liked her style. There's a TV
0: series <laughs> just about her. So, right.
2: You know, I, I'd probably watch that. I mean,
0: honestly... <laughs> to go back to Baba Yaga, uh, Baba is a female character. Uh, and she is one defined by striking ambiguity. Meaning she can be a friend or a foe. And she is, in Slavic folklore, a force of nature and supernature to be feared and respected. You fuck with Baba Yaga at your peril. They equate John with the boogeyman because he's the closest American equivalent. They're both eaters of children. But Baba Yaga can be someone who actually helps you, helps you find your path. And while she might present a threat, she also can bring out the best in you. Mm. It just really depends on how courteous you are with her and that would marry up with john guiding this family through a river of blood to their position of power winston ian mcshane the main overseer equates what john is approaching to a pond and vigo also says baba Yaga will come from the swamp the, the overall impression of this underworld that i get is that it is a dark body of water with monsters beneath the surface and that john is the most terrible of all the monsters you can oversimplify the plot of this film to killer gets revenge for his murdered dog but underneath that you have evil men awaiting their deserved end
2: in in the shot where he's going down into the basement everything is black everything it's utter pitch darkness as he's standing at the top with a sledgehammer Mm. walking down those steps in a very deliberate fashion like he he's clearly more at home with the darkness and he's coming to destroy it all and so many of the shots especially in the nightclub scene are framed and shot more like horror movie Mm. elements than this action until like they realize that he's there but just like that that one guy who's like looks in the mirror sees the other guy behind him at the lockers like looks down washes his hands and then we see in the mirror john just stabbed that guy and he just slowly slides down the lockers just like that's a horror movie shot
0: he's kind of like a xenomorph or a jason voorhees for gangsters a kaiser soze
2: when they finally catch him and he's in the he's tied to that chair and he's got the bag around his head in that church and vigo monologues because you know he's like oh my gosh maybe we're not all going to die but then john comes out with a shotgun and just fucking like wrecks everybody anyway and that must have seemed damn near supernatural we know marcus saves him he you know he has outside help but to an outside observer who doesn't anticipate that like, from Vigo's point of view, that would have to feel supernatural. Like, we had every upper hand on him, I left him in the most vulnerable place, and here he is having killed all of my men and holding a shotgun at me. It seems
0: almost like the, uh, I'm going to place him in an easily escapable situation involving an overly elaborate and exotic death. But you could also read into this that Vigo has a great respect for John and gives him a chance even if it's not a uh, a conscious chance he rather than stabbing john or shooting john just to make sure it's definitely done rather than having john's blood on his hands he leaves the building and assumes it's all going to go to plan
4: in part as well i think the fact that john has his position he has the reputation he has Because over the years, the people in this world have assigned him the tasks that they didn't want to get their own hands dirty with. And he's gone and done it, and they haven't asked questions, they haven't wanted to know why. But I think you're absolutely right, Lauren, that does add a supernatural element to how... He gets done what he gets done. The reason they don't know how he does it is because they don't want to know. They want to keep all of that at arm's length, and that ultimately is what ends up biting them in the arse.
0: I I do love the uh, the fact that in this film everything is symbolised as a simple a single gold coin, and that is the transactional Hmm. piece symbol. That is the Guillermo del Toro one, like you know, not necessarily that this symbolizes a person but the enterprise is symbolized by these gold coins Mm.
4: these gold coins that you literally cannot spend anywhere else yeah
0: and they will pay for a room or entry or a job that's a person's life Mm -hmm. or a cleanup there's a suggestion that the police are complicit to some degree
2: dinner for 12 (laughs) (laughs) um Yeah, and as you're talking about that, it really makes me think that one of the reasons I think John Wick Two is actually the inferior film is there are some scenes and concepts that are put in there that don't really serve the greater narrative or theme. Because everything in John Wick One feels very like tight, very efficient, just like he is. Yeah. But John Wick Two is like, oh well, here's a scene between Keanu Reeves and Lawrence Fishburne, that kind of like takes a nod back at the matrix in a way or you know here's uh ruby rose and uh common like doing kind of like stunt casting as these you know action villains and and things like that where it's almost like this homage to the concept of the of who these actors are or to movies that they've done okay
1: so what do you need guns lots of guns what do you need
0: guns lots of guns
2: uh, that's the thing for that movie he did. Fuck, I'm old.
0: I know, it amused me too.
2: Or even a callback to this film where Vigo says, you know, I I've, I've once watched him kill three men with a fucking pencil. And in the next film, we see him kill three men with a pencil. Like, it, it's almost like they, they just couldn't help themselves but to take these opportunities for like these little nods that don't really serve a greater purpose to the theming or the narrative. They're they're incidental, they're references to something else outside of it. And that makes it feel a lot less tightly conceived than the first film and a way less efficient.
0: Over the years, there's been some amazing imagery of John Wick on various posters and promotions and box art. But for me, the abiding image is just him stalking towards Yosef in that simple tailored suit with one handgun. The elegance of that one shot is the first John Wick film. And notably, Yosef still protests at the end. Not so much protesting his innocence, but suggesting that John shouldn't be angry over a stupid little dog. That all this life shouldn't be worth that of the dog. As though Daisy isn't worth a thousand crime lords.
1: This world doesn't need no opera Here for the operation We don't need Gun knife. Gun yeah. knife Cause they got guns, we got guns, we got guns, we got guns, we got guns, You battle run.
0: Kind of perfect how Marilyn Manson was there to announce Neo, and he's here to usher in John Wick as well. That's a little more subtle, a little less overt, like direct quotation with a huge wink to the audience. Elegance, efficiency, no flab, focus. That is the film. That is John Wick. John Wick is John Wick. If you catch my drift, it's not flabby and self-indulgent and operatic and over the top. It's. Very determined, and I don't think we really got across in our preamble quite how much Keanu Reeves trained his ass off for this. For like, was it like five months? Four months. Four months, five days a week, eight days, eight eight hours a day.
4: That was his job for four months.
0: Shooting, rolling, punching, car driving, driving, car driving, brilliant. (laughs) And, uh, and, and ensuring that as much of what John did on screen was all Keanu. So despite the fact that these guys have been his stunt doubles, he was like, well, let's work out a way to make sure that you guys don't have a job. You're directing this time, but we won't be needing any stunt doubles for me specifically. And it's quite astonishing when you look at like he, he was doing stuff like The Lake House. The one where he's communicating Uh, with Sandra Bullock through time. Leghouse was 2006, and he did Street Kings, The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Private Lives of Pippa Lee, then Henry's Crime in 2010, Man of Tai Chi in 2013. These are movies most people haven't heard of. So he had faded. He did uh, around about the same time as this, The 47 Ronin, which was kind of a disaster. Oh, and speaking of which, he is a Ronin in this Very much the image of the masterless samurai who now without purpose has to make his own.
2: There's something else that the film really benefits from with Keanu Reeves being the one doing all of his own stunts mm-hmm. is they can do much longer takes yeah. in those action things because they don't have to cut around a stuntman. So because of that, all of those uh, action films are <clears> – <throat> and I, t- I talk about this all the time because it's something that I notice like constantly in action films – is the longer the take, the better understanding you have of the – uh, like the surroundings of the action going on and of the space and it feels a lot better I mean think about in um, Black Panther the scene in the casino mm. that one it's not there, there's a couple of sneaky cuts in there but it's like it's done to be a long take and it's so much more powerful like that's the action bit from that movie I remember not any of the superhero punchiness mm. uh, and and John Wick is full of of these long takes, which really gets to show off, like how just much Keanu embodies this character with that, um, again, that economy of motion. But I just, it's it's so elegant and lavish the way that it's shot in that way. And I, and the only reason they could do that is because Keanu worked so hard. I've written a bit on the combat, aka fast-paced,
0: finely practiced murder. Uh, John's approach is instinctual, ruthlessly efficient, without being entirely mechanical. He's proactive in his decision-making in the broader sense and improvisational within a lightning-fast economy of reaction. In other words, he doesn't fuck around and he isn't showy with his kills. Some concessions were made by the stunt team to make realistic actions work a little bit more on camera. There are ways of killing people even more efficiently than John, but it, it doesn't register much on camera. You're just making a slight movement and then they die. <laughs> but within the context of John Wick, he's not showing off. He's not trying to impress anyone. He's just killing people as fast and as well as he can. He doesn't get angry often. And Sharon is right. he, He gets a little bit more angry by the end and more engaged, specifically when Vigo stands in his way repeatedly, when he's like, listen, I have made it fucking clear to you what's going on here. But he's very aware of how easily he could be injured if he behaves without consideration. He has to kind of take these injuries on board. And again, this separates him from a machine like the Terminator. He's not killing people like, you know, the way the T-1000 moves in T2 with this kind of like complete disregard for himself. He's just going to mechanically go, John avoids being hurt if he can help it. He's not a blunt instrument. And despite his military precision, he's not a soldier. He never pauses, aside from to ensure that he doesn't get shot and then react. He never deliberates over killing anyone that he's
3: up against. This is, as Mikey Newman said, a case of... John has to kill every single one of the people responsible for this iniquitous act of violence, and he must dispose of them with an efficiency of moral supremacy. He becomes the good guy, even though for his entire life he was the bad guy, because the literal anti-hero now has a single preeminent purpose avenge Daisy the atrocity that took
0: place the killing of Daisy puts John above everyone else John's plan is not to kill everyone but his determination is tempered by an allowance that Vigo will send everyone
1: everyone
0: these are evil men and they all deserve to die and it is fitting that they are sent to hell by the worst of them or the best of them and John takes them down in a set pattern And this happens over and over again. Wound to the body and then a shot to the head. And then often he stuns them and uses that time when they're down for just a moment to shoot somebody else. Or to reload or to get his bearings. But he always ensures that they're dispatched. He doesn't leave people groaning on the ground injured but alive. You're all going absolutely down. It's merciless. There are four characters. We've already mentioned one that John spares... Why does he do that, and what do they do with his mercy?
2: Oh, well, Francis was one that he yeah. spares, and he's just thank you, Mister Wick, and just leaves. And uh, never
0: appears again in any John Wick film.
2: He <laughs> made the right choice. Yeah, that reminds then, me of
0: that uh, guy that Deadpool meets at the end, uh, uh, just before he takes down Francis. He's you know that he's chatting about um, his his wife's cooking, and then knocks him out but doesn't kill him. Bob, what is?
2: Oh my god, I haven't seen you since since, uh, DGI Friday. Oh what the hell?
3: God, come here, you (laughs) how are the kids? Good? Gail, she's still fixing that tuna casserole. So good. Oh, but bad for the waistline.
2: Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then he does spare Perkins, uh, who then you know, she takes advantage of that, kills poor Henry Harry. She, she, she
0: spits in the face of the Continental and everything that it represents.
2: Yeah, and then it's because of her that Marcus gets killed. In the end, the Continental, the the proprietor of the Continental, steps in and is just like, yeah, you're done now, goodbye. <laughs> um, but But by paying that mercy, which John was doing as like a kind of almost professional courtesy because she was another assassin. Yeah. Most of these Russian mobsters he's fighting kind of like aren't on his level, but she was, and she was taking the contract on him. So he was kind of like, you know, as a professional courtesy, like I'll like, I won't just end you. And that goes all out the window in the second movie. And I wonder if it's because she does uh, take advantage of it rather than actually like, you know, appreciate the, the, the nod. Hmm.
0: Yeah, he effectively trusts her at that point to recognise the professional courtesy and mirror it. And she absolutely doesn't and goes after Marcus and clearly had every intention of going after him as
3: well.
4: Well, he treats it as if she is after him for utterly non-personal reasons. She's taken a contract. He can respect that. He needs to obviously move on. But she then responds to it as if it was personal.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. I do love the way that Adrian Paliki is uh, handled in this. She could have been male. It, 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 they never re- aside from the fact that she's very you know, sexily dressed at that uh, uh, first time that he meets her and she smiles at him in a kind of alluring way. There's never. I mean, a- although the actual fight between them in the hotel room is a little bit like fuck fighting in, in the way that uh, the, there's a fight in Haywire, uh, which is also fantastic to watch, he doesn't spare her because she's a woman. Specifically, mm-hmm. I think as far as I can tell because the other three aren't. Uh, yep. Francis, by the way, is played by Kevin Nash, the wrestler Diesel. Oh. I was like, he looks a bit like Kevin Nash and we were like, Oh it is Kevin But
2: <laughs> would explain why
0: <laughs> But uh, the thing you said about Marcus Is uh, king of the sniper rifle Reminded me of a bit in Leon Where uh, he's uh, training um, Natalie Portman And says that the first weapon you use Is the sniper rifle You stay as far away from your mark as possible and then the last le- uh, weapon you learn to use is the knife when you're that close. Perkins is that close. Her specialty is the Black Widow getting onto your shoulder like a python and just throttling you and and, and getting her legs wrapped around your arms and disabling you that way. She's the opposite of Marcus. She actively seems to like getting into the frame.
4: Mm, which would suggest that, contract or no, there is a personal element to every hit she does.
0: it. It, it seems like she's pleased to take the uh, hit on John as opposed to, are you
2: fucking kidding me? Mm, yeah. Sh- she she's not scared me... of him. She reminds me a lot of Yosef. Like, mm. she's a younger member of this, this underbelly and, like, doesn't necessarily believe the myth Yeah. of, yeah. of John Wick. These fuckers get younger every year.
4: Or she sees it as an opportunity to prove herself because Make she knows perfectly herself, well that yeah. there will be older and wiser assassins who look at that contract and go... Mm. Ah! Um, oh,
0: no. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, oh! So that's so sweet. No, no. Amy Adams oh, was there. Yeah. Well, oh no! <laughs> God. God. <laughs> uh, so the other, other people, two.
2: <laughs> well, one of them is the priest.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I actually for some reason thought that he would shot the priest because he goes into the. This is another thing about I'm taking down the gods. It's like, what can I do for you, my son? Blam town. Terminator X. <laughs> but no, he just shoots up the. Uh, um, the bodyguards in the church to get to the, the money and yeah. the uh, everything else that was priceless in the <laughs> basement. Does he shoot the priest the, in the leg? In the leg. Yes. But he doesn't yeah. kill him. Then he walks away from the, uh, at the blaze like it ain't no thing.
2: To be fair, Karen, God is a little ambiguous on the subject of kneecaps. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> even John, like, doesn't kill a man of the cloth in a church Mm -hmm. like there there's something to be said about that like i don't know if that's just like another kind of professional courtesy thing or just because john has all kinds of christian symbolism tattooed on him Mm -hmm. like we don't really know what john believes but he doesn't seem to be like that does stand out a little bit like why like he needed him to get into the vault but at that point like the guy wasn't useful for anything but I don't think he, he actually posed a threat either, because the thing that he was guarding is now gone. <laughs>
0: Another, uh, man that he uh, doesn't kill is Vigo. Uh, as you say, when he gets out with the uh, shotgun, shotguns the place up with that uh, Nerf Raider. And, um... <laughs> why doesn't he kill him there? And what does Vigo do with that?
2: The reason he doesn't kill Vigo there is that there should still be a, kind of a professionalism between them, because, like, he's not after Vigo. He's after Vigo's son. Bingo. And he's just like, just let me do this, and you can go on doing what you do. I don't care about your criminal enterprise i don't care about your leverage or your money but like you keep getting in the way so i have done things to you and your leverage to like you know pay you back for getting in my way for this purpose just tell me where yosef is and i'll let you go and he tells him where yosef is so john lets him go because john's also a man of his word he's not going to be like oh yeah sure tell me where he is great thanks shoot you anyway he's just like just just tell me what i need to know it's fine I'll let you go, hmm. and he does.
0: Which actually seems to contradict the idea that he's tearing all of this down, because he could easily have gone, and you are the guy at the head. I put you where you are. I'm gonna correct my mistake. Blam town. Terminator X.
4: don't think that really is his purpose though. He's not there to pull the whole thing out by the roots, but he at that point needs to get Vigo's attention and needs to make it very, very clear to him, I will do what I am here to do.
0: It seems like if John could have gotten to Yosef early on Mm. and just killed him there, he would have stopped immediately afterwards.
4: I had a note on this, like from the the first phone call that uh, Vigo makes to John, if at that point he had said, okay, this breaks my heart because he's my son, but you can have him. (laughs) He's a wrong and this needs to be done. That would have been the end of it.
2: Very short film. Yeah, yeah, but but Vigo couldn't do that
0: just because like he has to keep. As back. you said, he needs to save face. Yeah,
2: yeah. Which and he knows it. That's what I love about his acting is mm-hmm. that he knows that like this isn't going to end well for him. And my my favorite kind of like callback to that is in the end, whenever he's drive, he's being driven to that uh, helicopter. Somebody goes, "Who's that behind us?" And he just looks back and just gets this kind of like smile on his face, and he just puts that seatbelt on because he's like, "Well, here's where it ends." Go. <laughs> and then he gives it's um, going down tonight.
0: Then he gives the Rat King from Thirty Rock a gun and goes, oh, "Off you go, like yeah, enjoy."
2: He just tells him good luck. <laughs> just, that's just so good.
0: R.I.P.D. The character played by Dean Winters, who is called Avi. Evie! Shut up and sit down, you big, bald fuck.
2: Like, he knows. He knows that they're... None of them are making it out of there now. He almost got away, but like, oh no, John, John's here, we're, we're boned. Like, you know, I'll, I'll put in a good fight, like, I'll put in a good show of things, but like, we all die in tonight, boys.
4: And that actually gives you a really good dynamic between him, his behaviour, Vigo's behaviour, that is, and Yosef's behaviour, because the fact that Vigo knows in his bones what's going to happen, but he still has to protect Yosef, because, as you say, it's a, it's almost a face-saving exercise. The, the. The reputation that he will lose if he allows his own son, mm. his own heir, to be taken out by John Wick. And therefore, that's what he has to defend. Yosef will have grown up watching that, that need to preserve one's reputation at all costs. And that's what causes him to behave this way in the first place, because he doesn't understand why. He just knows his ego can't be slighted, but he doesn't understand the reason. Vigo knows the reasons... But he, because he's built this this mob uh, organisation that, that he's in charge of, but he obviously hasn't communicated this particularly well to Yosef because he doesn't understand it. Therefore, this is his
0: fault. Also, he clearly loathes this little shit.
4: Well, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> clearly he wishes his offspring were even one-tenth the man of John Wick, but as we find in almost all crime movies, he's indebted to the idea of family to the bitter fucking end. Even if he doesn't believe in it, he has to observe that ritual.
2: Well, Sharon, are are you saying that the children brought up in a situation full of overly (laughs) masculine pride and aggression and violence come out as toxic? Hmm. Huh.
4: I I think I might be.
2: (laughs) (sighs) Um, Uh. uh, But there
0: seems to be a weird uh, sticking point of professional courtesy because... Because Marcus saves John, and Vigo finds out and takes professional offence, he starts this shit up again and doubles down on that. Again, this is something that Mikey said: when your your aggressor doubles down on their shit behaviour, because Vigo takes on board everything Yosef's done and goes, "I'm going to carry on doing this shit," and like, it's baffling. He decides to kill Marcus in a petty act of revenge of you uh, you went against us, and then flee the country, so that John what well, like it doesn't matter where you go, Vigo. He's, he's John fucking you. Wick, <laughs> and then he's like this slippery fucking eel. Like he doesn't just like, you say that you know well we're going you know he, like he's surrendering. He doesn't just surrender to John. He uh, you know takes him on in, in a fist fight and then pulls a knife on him. He won't go down easy. Uh, and neither does he go down with dignity. Like, he doesn't just go, <sighs> like, do up his tie and say, okay, John, go for it. And then just allow John to shoot him in the head, which would thus uh, allow this horrible imbalance to just be balanced. He's got to make John fight for it. And he seems to, to to want to take, to drag John to hell with him. Mm.
3: Oh
2: yeah, and I mean, he even says at the end, you know, I'll I'll be seeing you, John. Mm. But it's it's the kind of thing where he has been a part of this for so long. It's kind of a live by the sword, die by the sword. Mm. Where like this violence just begets violence, and in even in that end, he still uh like kind of not double crosses, but like proves to not be like his word isn't as good as John's mm. because he says no more guns. Let's just finish this between us. They start the fistfight, and then he pulls a knife, yeah, which is against what he had just, like, you know, what the concept... It's not a gun, but but
0: yeah, it's it's totally kind of, okay, uh, put up your dukes. I got a knife.
2: Yeah, and, and so, like, even then, even in that moment, he is doing underhanded things to try to get the upper hand, but in his heart, in his bones, he knows that this is only going to end one way. But he still, because this is the world he knows, because this is the way he's lived, he can't just give up. Although I would have loved to have seen... A redo, a redo of the ending where he just straightens his tie and just kind of like, well, here we go. Like, here it is. Like, just do it. I could be wrong, um, but
0: isn't that how World of Perdition ends? Uh, Mikey compared this with World of Perdition, and there is a, an alarming similarity between the shitlord son of the, the mobster just doing what he feels like he's entitled to do. Because that's the thing. Everything about Yosef suggests he is accustomed to the partying, the being made a fuss of, and that if he doesn't get what he wants there's going to be horrible violence but that Daniel Craig in that film is just as much of a horrible, snivelling little cowardly, vicious shit I think at the end Paul Newman just sort of straightens his tie and goes, yep, seems about right It's been a while since I saw it but Sam Mendes directing on top form and cinematographer Conrad Hall just on fire
1: Ah, there you got married, huh? Settle down Well, you managed that anyways. Not good, yes. Yeah. Yeah, while you had your wife, I had my son. And believe me, you had a far better deal. (laughs) And then you left and the way you got out, lying to yourself that the past held no sway over the future. But in the end, a lot of us are rewarded for our misdeeds, which is why God took your wife and unleashed you upon me. This life follows you Clings to you, infecting everyone comes close to you. We are cursed, you and I. On that, we agree. Finally, common ground. (laughs) Okay. Step aside. Give me your son, John Wick. Baba Yaga. It was just a fucking car, just a fucking dog. Just a dog. Vigo. Yeah. When Ellen died, I lost everything. Until that dog arrived on my doorstep. A final gift from my wife. In that moment I received some semblance of An opportunity to grieve on the law. And your son took that from me. Oh Stole that from me. Killed that from me! People keep asking if I'm back, and I haven't really had an answer. But now, yeah, I'm thinking I'm back. So you can either hand over your yeah. son. Or you can die screaming alongside you.
0: John seems to be pondering the dichotomy between chaos and predeterminism in the film. Uh, he doesn't really voice it out loud, but various characters talk about things that were either going to happen or that we have no control over. So what does the conclusion in the film seem to be?
4: We did a podcast in which I talked about the distinction between y- you can't control anything and you can control everything, and that in actual fact, it's a balance between the two. I think it was the Pet cemetery show. Okay. This seems to personify that in the sense that what happens around Yosef is chaos. John is the control that brings it back to the centre. Hmm.
0: Marcus says uh, at the funeral, you know, this is just one of the things that uh, that, that ha- happens that she died because of chaos. He doesn't say it's chaos, be kind, but it's close. Mm. Uh, Vigo says she died because of what you do. God killed her.
4: Mm. It's mainly that Vigo is steeped in this himself. He's steeped in this life and there will be an immense amount of guilt that he's feeling that, in part, John has been able to absolve himself of of a lot of the guilt that he's felt over the things he's done because, ultimately, he was someone's hand. He wasn't doing these things at his own behest. Vigo, however, is the mastermind behind a lot of it. Mm. So he is responsible for the stuff that's gone down. And he has to live with that. And he's trying to push some of that guilt onto John.
0: We know that the thesis of the film cannot be simply cause and effect because it is statistically unlikely he would meet Iosef and that exact exchange would happen. So there is a certain amount of sometimes terrible things are going to happen. Mm. Orpheus's love Eurydice got spooked by a satyr, but then a snake bit her. It's chaos in action. Nobody planned that. A lot of Greek tragedy comes down to mortals raging at events that they perceive the gods have orchestrated, and a lot of the time the gods are far more human than they'd like to admit, and they weren't in charge of this. Too much faith is placed in oversight to ensure that good things happen, when we know that bad things happen all the time. John stopped being evil, became a human being, he was good, she died anyway, and he has no one to blame. And as we've said these fuckers for daisy's death he can blame i suppose the the, the thesis of the film uh, is going to be it really comes down to what you do with what you're dealt
4: Mm. yeah yeah certain things will happen and you can't avoid them but you can control how you respond to them
2: yeah the world is chaos and the only thing you actually have control over is yourself and your reaction to it
0: to defeat Vigo, John decides to deliberately impale himself on his enemy's knife. What can you read into this act? Because I was like, what does that mean? He, he literally stabs himself.
4: Yeah. I, okay. To go slightly deeper than the note I wrote after that happened, which was, got your knife. Um, <laughs> I think there's a part of John which wants to punish himself a little bit. He's, he's already been hurt. This is not a case of I have to hurt myself more, but he knows he's not coming out of this unscarred, so it's like, well, might as well take the hit now, and then that will enable me to do X, Y, Z.
0: He has a strange relationship with pain, in that he's clearly experienced a, a mountain of it uh, in his life and then seemed to be saying goodbye to it and then it got heaped on in a way that he can't deal with. He can't go to a doc. And uh, by the way, the uh, doctor who stitches him up is Randall Duck Kim, the guy who was the key master in Matrix Reloaded. So John has had to make a friend
2: of pain. I think John has a hell of a death wish because in the beginning he's uh, he like almost even contemplates suicide slamming into that truck in his car, but he stops because he has Daisy. But now all he has is the mission to kill Vigo. And by taking, like, it doesn't matter what kind of damage John takes. It doesn't matter if he gets stabbed. He now has that knife and he is going to kill Vigo and finish his mission. And in the end, he goes to lay down to die outside of that veterinary office that that animal rescue league and uh the only reason he gets back up is he hears ellen say come on john let's go home (sighs) it's the only reason that he because in that moment he he has finished his job he's there's nothing else for me so i might as well lay down and die but he had left that video running and hearing her voice is just like well like She's saying, no, John, you need to find something that you can't do this. Like you need to have something more for your life. You need to go home. And that's why he drags himself up, staples his wound shut that he had caused deliberately with that knife to get it and finds that adorable dog to take with him. He finds a new thing to live for at his wife's behest. But before that, He was willing to die for the mission. This film is
0: raw and lean and pared down, and while it is semi-operatic, it feels kitchen sink at times and restrains itself by comparison with the big tentpole blockbusters each year, going for feats of coordination over digital spectacle. It sits just on the side of ostentatious, just enough to be blackly comic sometimes at key moments in a way that eases the pain and tension, but not enough to be unbelievable. The world of professional assassins is left mysterious and exotic rather than being flung out into the open to examine in superfluous detail. It differs from Greek tragedy in that our hero gets to live at the end. Orpheus, thrown into despair after losing Eurydice a second time, spends the rest of his days playing sad, beautiful songs alone and is eventually torn apart by maenads. It would make perfect sense from a story perspective for John to just bleed out and die at the end, having felled the gods. But he lives, and there's a deliberate ambiguity as to whether he's going to incur more trouble as he walks off into the sunrise with his new, four-legged friend. But justice is served, and his dark works are balanced. Obviously, that's ambiguity the sequels dispense with by necessity, and justice is called into question by a semi-ludicrous decision to kill John Wick as punishment for what he did in this first film. Semi-ludicrous because sending a hundred men up against John Wick is a really good way to lose a hundred or a thousand extremely useful, extremely expensive men. When the wisest, most sensible option, even the one most observing of cause and effect is to just leave him alone. This was one powerful big family that wronged a powerful small one. When the dust settles only one man is left, an eye for an eye has been served out and any sane system would let that be it. But the need for more compels them to push hard and what gets lost in the sequeling process is the mythological undertone. In his piece on the second film, Mikey Newman equates John Wick 2 with a video game, reinventing the series and its philosophies along with it. Which is why it's a different beast, and why I found it a lot harder to engage with. This is exactly why I didn't like God of War 2, and I definitely didn't like God of War 3, and I haven't yet played Dad of Boy. Kratos's initial beef with Ares was served out in the first one. Of all the story types that it is most difficult to justify sequels for, revenge stories stand at the top. thank you once again to lauren grieve for your wonderful guesting duties next week it's detective pikachu and in addition to detective pikachu on our main feed if you guys want to hear sean and i tackle pokemon the first movie an anime that we chose so i cannot reiterate this enough times we are not taking suggestions But if you want to hear us talk about Pokemon the first movie, you will definitely want to be supporting us on Patreon for five bucks or more, which gives you access to the bonus feed, including this quick review. Haven't got a clip. We haven't even done it yet. But I do know that in the past few weeks, we've covered Ace Ventura Pet Detective, this hateful trans panic comedy from the 90s where Jim Carrey screams catchphrases he made up in Courtney Cox's face. And an hour-long quick review of Soul Man, a 1986 film in which a white college student sneaks into Harvard on a scholarship set aside for an African-American student, and he does this by wearing blackface. Yes, this film exists. And yes, we tore it a new asshole. Here's a clip. And he says when he puts his full blackface costume on that he wears for the whole rest of the film. And I quote, It's the Cosby decade. Good. Glad, Glad you picked a rapist on this one. It's the Cosby decade. America loves black people. Now, the point of the film is that he's being naive here, as we find out, but it felt like the film was being alarmingly naive here, mm. and the film is alarmingly naive.
4: Yes, and also it's worth bearing in mind that when he says four people from L.A. got accepted into L.A. law... L.A. law? Well, Harvard well, the law. the TV show. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, four people from L.A. got into, accepted into Harvard law this year, two of them are him and Gordy. Ha- and I think the third might be Julia Dreyfus. By the way,
0: how is Gordy in law? He's a fucking no moron. And if you're on the $15 tier, our highest tier, then you get sponsorship credit every episode. So a big thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasko, Tyler Long, Adam Kilmartin, Joe Gusega, Greg Downing, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolfe, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman... Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Lux, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisham. We are also very happy to announce that School of Movies now has a Discord server. Check out our Twitter feed for the link. You can join up and start chatting with people right now, other smart, beautiful School of Movies listeners just like you, about movies, TV, video games, comics, and New Century. And one last thing you should check out on YouTube by Corridor, Nerf John Wick. It's exactly what it sounds like, and it is sublime. And we're gonna end on Kaleida who are uh, the duo who sing Think. Do you remember that uh, the song in the club?
2: Oh, the the really like quiet one?
0: Yes, I think that you're, oh, you're on that, that was... one. The one with the, the, the really powerful just um, uh, uh, bass the tones that are at work there
2: it's so perfect
4: there is a particular line in that song think of me, you're never in the dark Ellen is with him through that Mm. that's how he gets out
0: they're an English electropop duo from London, England uh, and uh, they haven't released many albums they've released EPs so you want to look for Think from 2015 that has 6 tracks Detune which has 4 tracks and from 2017 I don't know why this isn't an album Tear the roots, which has twelve tracks. Uh, there's a hypnotic and a transportive feel to how it plays out. It can also, if you're feeling melancholy and uh, really down, actually make things worse. It's weird. Uh, like it, uh, it, uh, if you're feeling an existential dread, it can exacerbate that. So, if you're going to listen to Kaleida, listen I'm sure responsibly. You're in a happy mood. <laughs> And, and, and don't listen when you're you're too down because it can it can be like drowning but we're gonna finish on think because it is one of the most perfect pairings of music and action in the film and this is one of those times when uh, I felt like more was going on beneath the surface. This is when he confronts Yosef uh, in, in the basement, the bottom of the club. Uh, effectively in the river sticks.
4: I think Lauren mentioned something about uh, Joseph being down there with his mates and asking someone to bring him a bottle. Um, they're also the the song that they're chanting, which annoyed me because they're they're in this environment of of the pool and the champagne and the girls, and it's just this pointless decadence because they're immersing themselves in this sensation and they aren't embracing. The sensate environment that they're in, they're ignoring the uh, diegetic music that's going on in that beautiful environment to rah Russian, what well, it sounds like a football chant, but apparently it's a lullaby at each other. And that just, I just wanted to slap them, frankly. I was like, this is just, you're not appreciating it at all, are you? But if it's a lullaby, then that emphasizes the whole, they're just babies. Mm.
1: They're babies. babies!
0: Angry, violent babies. Yes. But uh, this, this is a, uh, a film that I'll be revisiting repeatedly uh, because you know it doesn't matter how many sequels it gets. This first one is... Uh, I, I hesitate to use the word masterpiece, but it's really difficult to imagine a film doing precisely what this does in a better way than what this does. I suppose it's... The masterclass of its type.
2: Yeah. And even given the other work that the people who made this film did in the past, as we went over at the beginning, it's kind of remarkable how good the film is. Yeah.
0: Thank you to Lauren Greve for being such a wonderful guest. Next week, Detective Pikachu, this is Kaleida with Think. I've been Alex Shaw.
2: I've been
4: Sharon Shaw.
0: And school's you. out.
4: Boy,